Clancy Pasta presents The Sisters, written by Sammy Scott. There was nothing particularly noteworthy about the house. It sat like a fading yellow cube among similar houses on its block. There was no landscaping to speak of, no flowers, nor bushes, no lawn ornaments or trees, nothing to ground it or give it any kind of personality. Its shutters and front door were a dark, unattractive brown, and the sidewalk leading to the front door was cracked, with grass and weeds poking through every fissure. The metal fence that framed the property was rusted and bent in places, and the roof had bald spots where shingles had fallen away. As a home, it was hardly welcoming and in much need of care. I parked the car at the curb and killed the engine. There was a manila folder on the passenger seat beside me. I opened it up and reviewed the file inside. Dolores Cartwright, age 82, early onset dementia. I was the fourth in line of home care nurses who had been sent to take care of her. The previous three had quit without notice. Her daughter Monica had hired me, warning me in advance of the impossible task ahead. My ultimate goal was to convince Dolores to move into convalescent care, where she could be supervised and cared for 24-7, but even Monica admitted this would likely never happen. The house, plain and unwelcoming as it was, was Dolores' childhood home and she refused to leave it. And so, barring that option, my secondary goal was simply to persuade Dolores that she needed in-home care, someone to cook, clean, and tend to her health. These were all tasks that Monica was willing to do herself, but her mother had thrown her out, verbally abusing her until Monica could take no more and had reluctantly left Dolores on her own. She's not well enough to be on her own, Monica had told me. The stairs are steep, and she refuses to move her bedroom down into the living area. She has a hard time getting around and spends most of her time in bed. She sometimes forgets to eat. Monica's voice had faded at this point as she fought tears. Clearly, if I were not able to successfully interject myself into Dolores' life, more drastic measures would have to be taken. She would have to be forcibly moved. I understood the unpleasant task at hand. There's something else I need to tell you before you go, Monica said. Her sister, my Aunt Edna, recently died. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, I said. No, no, Monica continued with a sad chuckle. They were estranged. They hadn't spoken in years. To put it bluntly, Edna was a terrible person. She had been since childhood. I didn't even know until I was a teenager that I had an aunt. The family didn't speak of her. She was abusive to my mom. On the day that my mother was born, they handed her to Edna. You know, look at your new baby sister. Edna dropped her on the floor, and that was just the beginning. She once pinned my mother down and cut her forearms with a piece of broken glass, tied her to the bed and left her there for an entire day while my grandparents were away. Drowned my mom's kitten in the bathtub. Just terrible things. My grandparents tried all kinds of measures to deal with her. They grew up in a generation where corporal punishment was the norm, and according to my mom, 
My grandfather even resorted to whipping with a leather belt. He would leave welts on Aunt Edna's legs and backside, but she never cried. Mom said Edna would walk away from these whippings completely stone-faced. Eventually, they shipped her off to a school for troubled youths. Mom said at first they would visit her there every weekend, although Edna refused to talk to them at all, except on certain occasions when she would unleash a loud verbal assault that left them no choice but to turn around and go back home. And so the weekly visits became monthly. The monthly visits became holiday visits. And eventually they stopped going to see her at all. Mom said that in her teenage years, she felt like an only child, and she loved it. She said that she and her parents eventually behaved as if Edna had never existed. One day, my grandfather got a call from the school telling him that Edna had run away. He simply said, thank you, and hung up the phone. They never bothered trying to track her down. The family assumed that she was likely to have gotten caught up in a bad lifestyle. Drugs, prostitution. It was hard for them to imagine any other course for her to have taken. But these were all assumptions on their part. Certainly none of them thought she would have gone on to live a long or normal life. Still, my mom said that there were things that happened over the years that made her think Edna was still around. Sometimes they'd come home to a shattered window. Another time the house had been ransacked. The place was a mess, but nothing had been stolen. The worst was the time they came home and found a leather belt curled up on the kitchen table in my grandfather's chair. Mom says that Grandpa simply picked it up and put it away, not saying a word. Everyone was thinking Edna, but no one spoke her name. Eventually, my mom grew up and moved out, of course. Struck out on her own, got pregnant, had me. She suspects that Edna continued to make herself known at the old house, but Grandma and Grandpa, of course, never spoke of it. For my mom, it had been so long since the last incident that she had mostly forgotten about Edna. But then, there was this. She held up her hand for me to see, and for the first time, I noticed that her left ring finger was missing. This happened when I was an infant. My mother had taken me to the park for a walk. I was in a stroller. She was distracted by a little boy who had fallen down near a duck pond. She helped him up, dusted him off, and pointed him to his mother. She said she was watching him walk away when I began to scream. When she got to me, I was covered in blood, and my finger was gone. She panicked, of course. It all happened in an instant. And although she never laid eyes on her, my mother knew it was Edna. That's just terrible, I said. Monica shrugged, a motion that was both dismissive and sad. My grandparents died about 20 years ago. They left my mom the house and she moved back into it. I was on my own by then. Didn't anything happen? I asked. After your mom moved back in? I've always wondered, Monica said, but like I said, my family didn't speak of her, and I didn't ask. Anyway. Monica gave me a tired smile and sighed. You're probably wondering if there's a point to all of this. The point is, Edna died a couple of months ago. 
She had lived to the age of 86. And now, my mom is convinced that... Monica paused, taking a deep, shaky breath. My mom is convinced that Aunt Edna is haunting her house. She averted her eyes from mine, clearly uncomfortable with this admission. Oh, I replied, surprised. Okay. I know what you're thinking, Monica said, holding up a palm. You don't have to say it. A delusion like that is common for someone with dementia, and that's probably all that this is. But what concerns me is this. We didn't know that Aunt Edna had died until after Mom began insisting that her ghost was haunting the house. It was only after Mom refused to let go of the idea that I began digging into Edna's whereabouts. It took a lot of effort, but I finally tracked her down. She had lived close to the family her entire life, which I guess shouldn't have been surprising, all things considered. And she had died only one day before my mom claimed to have seen her for the first time, standing in the kitchen. I paused for a minute, letting Monica's words sink in. If she is so certain that her sister is haunting the house, isn't that reason enough for her to leave? One would think, said Monica, but she insists that the house is hers and she will not leave it. And what do you think? I asked. I don't believe in ghosts, said Monica. I think my mom is just sick, and it's because of my refusal to play along with her that she kicked me out of the house. My mom is not the evil seed that Aunt Edna was, but she's still a hard, stubborn woman. Always has been. The dementia has made it worse. So I'm sorry to ask you to go in there, and I understand if you want to pass on this particular job, but she needs help. Please, help her. The neighborhood was completely silent as I exited the car, the sound of the slamming door echoing down the street. I was acutely aware of the sound of my steps as my soft-soled shoes scuffled on the concrete, as well as the high-pitched squeak of the gate as I pulled it open. Approaching the house, I glanced upward and caught sight of a figure standing at one of the upstairs windows, staring down at me. I raised one hand in greeting, attempting a pleasant smile, and the figure retreated. I raised a hand to knock on the front door, but it opened slightly before my knuckles touched the wood. One eye, framed in wrinkles, peered out at me. Miss Cartwright? I asked. Yes, said the woman. Her face was deeply creased, her eyes the color of ice. Her white hair was pulled up in a severe bun at the top of her head. She was a stern-looking woman with a large, sharp nose that my own mother would have described as proud. Her posture was amazingly straight for a woman of her age, and I was surprised to note that she was actually an inch or two taller than me. My name is Andrea. I'm a nurse with home health services. May I come in and talk to you? She looked me up and down for a moment. I felt suddenly very self-aware and wondered if perhaps my sweater was a tad too tight or my skirt just a hair too short. It was a childish reaction that I quickly dismissed. After a moment, she backed away, opening the door further, and I stepped inside. I was hit by a sudden chill that made my arms break out in hard goosebumps. 
The temperature outside was warm and humid, an early autumn day still stubbornly holding on to the remnants of summer. But it was uncomfortably cold in the house, and I immediately thought of how unhealthy such a low temperature would be on an elderly body. She extended an arm, inviting, or more accurately, demanding, that I step into the living room. I took a seat on a couch that felt worn and dusty, but soft, and felt myself sink uncomfortably into the cushion. I set my briefcase on the floor in front of me, and removed a pen as well as Dolores' medical folder, while she took a seat in a rocking chair across the room. The chair faced the front bay window, the afternoon sunshine the only source of light in the dim room. She rocked slowly, her face in profile, not bothering to look at me. The chair creaked. Your daughter sent me, I began. I don't have a daughter, she snapped, looking at me harshly. The harshness of her response startled me, and my immediate instinct was to chuckle slightly at the outburst. She said you'd say that, I responded. I tugged a lock of hair behind my ear nervously. How are you feeling today, Miss Cartwright? I'm fine, she responded, almost spitting the words, and returned her gaze slowly to the window. Monica is concerned, I continued. I know how important it is to be independent, but you do have some pretty serious health concerns. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the facilities we have at... I'm not leaving, she interrupted. This is my house. I grew up in this house. I'm not leaving. With each sentence, she slammed one palm down on the arm of her chair. I understand, I said. Then perhaps we can talk about making your situation here a little more ideal. Having someone come in to take care of you. To cook, clean, monitor your health, even provide some companionship. No, she said, continuing to rock. You can still maintain a lot of your independence, I continued. You should look at it more like a partnership. I'm not here to take over, but to assist. You'd still be able to keep your home. No, she said again. I found myself momentarily at a loss for words. Miss Cartwright, you need to understand... I stopped when I heard a sound, a low, quiet moan from upstairs. I looked up at the ceiling for a moment, listening. When I looked back down again, Dolores' face was unchanged, her gaze locked steadily on the window before her. You need to understand, I continued, that we must come to some sort of agreement today, a compromise. You have some pretty serious health concerns that need to be addressed. And if in my assessment I determine that it isn't safe for you to be here by yourself, then it could lead to a situation that you would find less agreeable than simply having home health care. She rocked, not responding. I stared at her and shivered. I looked over at the thermostat on the wall. It doesn't work, she said. It's colder in here than it is outside, I said pulling down on my sweater sleeves in a futile effort to cover more of my arms. She rocked. Miss Cartwright, can we just discuss? Again, I was interrupted by the moaning sound, louder this time, coming through the ceiling right above my head. 
I listened intently for more, but there was only silence. I'm sorry, I said, but did you hear that? Yes, she said. I heard it. Every day and night, I hear it. It doesn't stop. What was that? I asked. My sister, she hissed. I closed the medical folder and sat forward on the couch. Can we talk about her? I asked. She rocked. So, you believe that your sister is... that your sister lives here now, too? I know she does, she responded. And you do understand that she died several weeks ago? At this, she let out a chuckle, a deep rattling sound that bordered on a cough. She's been dead to me since we were children. So you believe in ghosts? I asked. Oh my, yes, she said. Have you always believed in ghosts? She hesitated. Not until very recently, she said. And for the first time, her tone was colored by melancholy. Can you see her or just hear her? I asked. See, hear, smell, she spat. She walks around like she owns the place. She waved one bony hand dismissively. I can't get a moment's peace for all of her shouting and crying. What do you think she wants? She wants me to leave. Just like you do. <laughs> but this is my house. This has always been my house. I'm not going anywhere. I sat back on the couch thinking. In the silence, I heard a new sound. A slight shuffling sound, like something scraping against the floor above me. For the first time, Dolores looked up as well, acknowledging the noise. An impatient look fell across her eyes. Do you own a cat? I asked, my mind grasping for a logical explanation for the noise and silently chiding myself for not exhausting some reasonable explanations first. No, she said. I hate cats. It's her. Are you sure? I asked. She looked at me. You ask stupid questions, she said. Of course I'm sure. Okay, I said, a determined smile on my face. If you can be blunt, I can be blunt too. You have three options, Miss Cartwright. You can accept home health care, you can move to assisted living on your own volition, or you can be removed against your will. Those are your choices. Staying here on your own isn't one of them. Don't talk to me about choices, you ignorant little girl, she said, planting her feet flat on the floor, the rocking of the chair ceasing. She leaned sideways toward me. Don't you dare come into my home and tell me what my choices are. Who do you think you are? My heart clenched nervously and I took a moment to suck in a deep breath. I swallowed the words I wished to say in response to her insults and forced myself to relax my face, adopting a kind of calm, professional demeanor that warred against my natural instincts. Miss Cartwright, I said, leaning further toward her, there are no such things as ghosts. 
You are a sick woman, in need of continuing medical assistance. I understand why you are angry, but you are not angry at me. You are angry about the cards you have been dealt. But you do have choices, and not all of them are as disagreeable as you think that they are. Go and see, she said slowly, raising her eyebrows and flicking one wrinkled hand toward the stairs. Excuse me, I said. Go and see, she repeated, lifting her chin. Go upstairs and see for yourself. I felt suddenly, stupidly, scared. Biting my lip, I returned her gaze. I fidgeted nervously with the folder on my lap, bending one corner with my index finger. She had called my bluff. She laughed, sitting back in her chair and rocking. She shook her head, continuing to chuckle. Stupid little girl. I stood up quickly, turned, and marched towards the stairs, the movement instantly making me feel like an impudent child. When I looked back at her, she had a surprised yet amused look on her face. First door on the right, she said. I found a way to keep her isolated there. For now, anyway. Tell her I say hello. And then she waved her hand dismissively. She watched me as I ascended. The stairway was steep and narrow, each step creaking as I made my way upward. It was impossibly, inexplicably even colder on the upstairs landing than it had been below. Soon, I found myself in a dimly lit hallway. Off-white walls with no pictures anywhere, dusty beige carpeting. There were four closed doors before me, one on the left, one at the far end, and two on my right. I approached the door on the right. As I reached for the knob, I once again heard a low moaning sound, and my heart lurched. For some reason, I expected the door to be locked, but the knob, ice cold against my hand, turned freely, and the door swung open. There was nothing in the room except a bed, lit by a dusty beam of light coming in from a lone window, whose yellowing shade was drawn. Upon the bed was a woman. She was wearing a tattered nightgown. Her hair was long, white, and wild. Her eyes were wide and the color of ice, fixed firmly upon me from the moment I stepped into the room. Her hands and feet were bound to the bed. Her mouth was gagged. She had cuts on her face and arms, and there was dried blood on the sheets and her gown. I raced toward the bed. I slipped my fingers under the gag, pulling it down with some effort. The woman had no teeth, and her mouth hung open in a silent, straining scream. She took a deep breath, her head rolling unsteadily in an effort to lift it off the pillow. She looked into my eyes, her face full of fear. Edna, she croaked. Edna. I reached for the fabric restraining one of her wrists. The knot was tight, and I saw that her hands were blue, the veins bulging. My hands were shaking terribly, and I had trouble loosening the knot. I returned her gaze. Dolores? I asked, surprised to find myself breathless. She nodded quickly. Eventually, I was able to free her, 
Putting one of her arms over my shoulder, I lifted her out of bed. She was disturbingly light, and when I placed one hand on her side to steady her, I could feel her ribs through her nightgown. She groaned as we walked from the bedroom, and it was with much effort that we made the torturously slow journey down the narrow stairs, Dolores' labored breath stinging my nostrils with its acrid aroma. When we finally reached the foyer below, I took one hesitant look toward the living room. There was the rocking chair, empty and pale in the dim afternoon light coming from the bay window. Looking away again, from the corner of my eye, I sensed that the chair rocked slightly, but I dared not look back to confirm it. I was winded, and getting the old woman out the front door took so much effort that I did not bother closing it behind me. Ultimately, it didn't matter, as I heard it slam shut behind us, its loud report startling me and sending a chill that I felt in my fingertips. I do not know if anyone could see us as we made our way down the cracked and craggy sidewalk, but if they did, they might have wondered what our story was, Dolores in her thin, dirty nightgown, and me pulling her forward more quickly than she could ably move. I deposited her in the passenger seat and carefully shut the car door. I turned and faced the house once more, my keys clutched tightly in one hand, expecting to see Edna in one of the windows watching us. But every one of them was empty, shadowy rectangles that hid whatever lurked behind them. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed tonight's story. If you did, make sure to check out more of the author's work in the episode description and go to youtube.com slash clancypasta to hear new episodes first. And if you'd like your story featured in an episode, feel free to email it to clancypastastories at gmail.com. You can always get your creepy cool merch at teespring.com slash stores slash clancypasta store. And I hope you all have a great night. Cheers. <laughs>